0: So we're going to pick up more into that theme of doubt as we dig a little more into our passage. But for now, to kind of set the stage of what this sermon text is about, where it's located, um, Jesus has just gotten done instructing the disciples for their first mission. You know what? I'm going to pray first, actually. I, I I almost got ahead of myself. Lord, thank you for these children. We ask that you would give them trust in you jesus that you would give them faith lord when when we doubt when they doubt we ask that you would give us the courage to go right to you to ask you about it lord thank you god for giving us jesus who we ultimately who ultimately is trustworthy and let us learn more about you jesus as we look at this passage it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So he just finished instructing the disciples. That was chapter ten. And then we come to chapter eleven, which is our passage this morning. And here's an outline, three points to the outline. The first point John the Baptist questions Jesus and then Jesus wrong response. John, he assesses him, and then the wrong response. So John the Baptist questions Jesus, Jesus assesses John, and then at the end we have a wrong response. So verses two through six are John the Baptist questioning Jesus. And so here we go, verse verse one is a little bit outside the outline, it kind of goes more with chapter 10 with what just happened. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, that was chapter 10, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So, Jesus, so he's done instructing the disciples now. He finishes that, and then he himself goes and teaches and preaches in the cities himself, just as he instructed them to do. Jesus literally practices what he preaches. He's not the kind of leader who makes unrealistic demands, wagging his finger saying go do this, go do that, but not being personally involved, not willing to lift weight himself. He's the kind of leader who enters in worth trusting to do. He's a leader worth following. He's a leader worth trusting. So then, verse 2. Now we're into our outline. John the Baptist questions Jesus. Verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. So, again, we're talking about John the Baptist here. That's made clear in verse 11. John the Baptist has been arrested, if you remember, in chapter 4, verse 12. But still, in prison he has access to disciple to his disciples he had a following at that time and he sends word by way of his disciples because John the Baptist himself obviously can't go personally to Jesus because he's physically in prison he sends his disciples to do that in his stead and this is provoked because he heard about the deeds of the Christ he heard about the deeds of the Christ John the Baptist hears what Jesus has been doing He's been keeping up with the news while he's been in prison, and he hears about what Jesus is doing. And so verse 3 gives the message that John sent his disciples to ask Jesus. And it's a bit of a head-scratcher for uh, uh, for me, for us, in light of John's ministry, but here's what he says. Verse 3, he said to him, "'Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another?' Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? This is a strange question for John the Baptist to be asking. This is the guy who, in John 1: 129, said, "Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world." That's pretty confident. John 1:34, "I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In other words, this is the one who's to come. Don't look for another. But here, John the Baptist asks Jesus, are you the one who's to come, or should I look for another? John the Baptist is doubting. He's doubting. He's doubting who Jesus really is, even though he's previously experienced some level of confidence about that. As we just saw with the kids, John the Baptist handles his doubt properly. He handles his doubt properly. He's struggling to believe who Jesus is. And so he goes right to Jesus and asks Jesus himself to solve his doubts. That's what he does. He goes right to Jesus. We doubt as well. Maybe we doubt that God has a good plan for us. Maybe we doubt that that Jesus loves us. Maybe we doubt that God even exists. That's a big part of my story, struggling with doubt about whether God exists. Can I trust the Bible? This passage in particular has been really impactful for me as a directive to go right to Jesus when I struggle with doubts about him. When we doubt, we are invited to ask Jesus himself if he really is who he says he is. We don't have to go searching aimlessly and desperately for answers under every rock, every nook, every cranny, reading all piles and piles of books or whatever. When we're plagued by doubts, we are invited to approach Jesus directly and just ask him, are you the one who's to come? Or should we look for another? Are you the one, Jesus? Can I trust you? And we can trust him respond. Here's how Jesus responds to John the Baptist's question. So we're still in the section, John the Baptist questions Jesus. Well, here's the answer. Verse four, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. So verse 4, Jesus actually says, hear and see. And that that assumes that John's disciples are both hearing and seeing what Jesus is describing. Luke 7 makes this explicit, that Jesus on the spot did a number of these things to demonstrate uh, who he is, to demonstrate these words and back them up. Matthew doesn't make that as explicit. Matthew is more concerned just to show the content of what Jesus said. And so that's what I'm going to emphasize here, because we're in the Gospel of Matthew. All of these miracles in verse 5 are things that Jesus has done already. In fact, he's just sent his 12 disciples out last chapter in chapter 10 to go do the exact same thing that he did. This is what Jesus is all about. These are the deeds that John heard in prison. This is what Jesus does. But I don't think that John the Baptist was only looking for like, eyewitness evidences to remedy his doubt. After all, John the Baptist himself is not even here. He's gonna have to still rely on other people who have seen it because he's in prison. He's not seeing it for himself still. I don't think John the Baptist is coming here for evidence. He's not getting any better evidence than he would have had before. John the Baptist is looking for personal confirmation from Jesus. He's going right to Jesus to just ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? And in verse 5, this is the form that that confirmation comes in. Jesus lists off all these things he does. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. These are the Old Testament, these aren't the only Old Testament expectations, but these are a number of Old Testament expectations for the Messiah, for the Savior of the world that the Old Testament describes and that the Old Testament waits for. All of these themes are picked up in the book of Isaiah. There's many different examples. I, I only picked one of each, but let me just list off for each item, receive sight, lame walk, etc. a passage of Isaiah that anticipates that the Messiah would do this. The blind receive their sight. How about Isaiah 35, 5? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The lame walk, Isaiah 35, 6. Isaiah 58, 8. Your healing shall, man, leap like a deer. The lepers are cleansed, Isaiah 58.8. Your healing shall spring up speedily. The deaf will hear, Isaiah 35.5. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The dead are raised, Isaiah 26.19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. The poor have good news preached to them, Isaiah 61.1. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus is fulfilling These expectations of the Messiah from the book of Isaiah, from the Old Testament in general. In other words, Jesus refers John the Baptist to what God has already said, to what God has already said. And he shows that he himself is the fulfillment of what God has already said. Jesus refers John to what God has already said. And Jesus shows that he is the fulfillment of what God has already said. The solution to John's doubt is to hear from Jesus in God's word. That's his solution to doubt. So when we have questions about God, when when we, by way of application, have doubts about God, we can go directly to God to ask him, and he will answer in his word The Bible describes itself as alive and active. The Bible is God's living and active word because he is our living and active God. He speaks to us actively through the words of the Bible. So when we have doubts, when we have doubts, let's hear from God personally. Let's go to God personally. Let's hear from him in his word. And let's let's let him speak to us about our doubts. Let's hear what he has to say. Verse 6, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Jesus says. So, this is the the last, um, the, the ending of the section that John questions Jesus. Jesus says this, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is an encouragement to John. This is an encouragement to John. There will be people in the gospel of Matthew who are offended by Jesus. There will be plenty of those people, and those are the people who reject his message. Chapter 13, we see the people from his hometown will reject him. Chapter 15, the Pharisees will reject him. But even in our passage, in verse 16, this generation rejects the messages of John the Baptist and Jesus, there are people who are offended by Jesus, but not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not offended by Jesus. He's just struggling with doubt about Jesus. Those are different things. Throughout the New Testament, and in this passage as well, John the Baptist and Jesus are on the same team. Even verses 18 and 19, Jesus will group himself and John the Baptist together as prophets who work together. They're not opposed to each other. John's not offended by Jesus. He's not opposed to Jesus. John the Baptist is not outside of salvation because of his doubts. Rather, he is blessed because he is not offended by Jesus. And in fact, in faith... Perhaps that sounds peculiar in light of his struggle with doubt, but in faith, he goes to Jesus to ask Jesus to remove his doubts. It's like the person in Mark, I believe, help my unbelief. That's not a faithless prayer. That's a faithful prayer amidst the doubt that they struggle with. And that is what John does here. Sometimes people, I've heard people say, hey, it's not a sin to doubt. It just matters what you do about it. And there's, I think, some helpfulness to that and some perhaps unhelpfulness to that. We're commanded to believe in God. And so if, if we're doubting, I don't think that's like obedience, perfect obedience, really. So I think, I mean, it's worth saying we don't want to doubt, right? I mean, this has been a big part of my story. I don't think it was, I was perfect, in my doubt, right? Like I just—I don't think we want to say it's not a sin to doubt. I think there is some wrongness to that. However, we're not condemned in our doubt. We're still saved in our doubt, and we can still exercise faith in our doubt, and we can be blessed amidst our doubt. And I think this is Jesus' way of encouraging John amidst his doubt. Hey, look, doubt is not a great spot to be, but you're blessed if you're not offended by me. Come be blessed. Come believe me. I hope that this encourages us to truly go to Jesus if we have doubts about him, because Jesus invites us to be blessed by him. He invites us to be blessed. Next point in our outline is that Jesus assesses John. Jesus assesses John. Verses seven to 15 are in this little bullet point. Let's read verse seven together. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he asks several rhetorical questions about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So the wilderness, the wilderness is just where John was doing his ministry. So that's why Jesus brings up the wilderness here. So Jesus is asking, why did you come out to the wilderness? Why did you come to the wilderness to see John? And then a reed shaken by the wind. In other words, did you come to see a a flimsy person who would do whatever you want and doesn't have a spine kind of a thing? No, it's a rhetorical question. No, John the Baptist is the guy who confronts the corrupt religious leadership and he calls them, you brood of vipers. And in the same paragraph, he says, basically, you're going to hell if you don't repent. I mean, this is not some reed shaken by the wind. This is a guy with quite the spine. John the Baptist is not a reed shaken by the wind. Verse eight is similar Jesus asks another rhetorical question. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Again, the answer is no. John the Baptist is not a king who lives in a palace wearing royal clothing. He lives in the wilderness wearing camel's hair and eating insects. This guy hardly lives in luxury. No, you didn't come to see a king, Jesus says. Verse 9, what then did you go out to see? And here it is, a prophet Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. They did come to see a prophet. Jesus knows that they came to see a prophet. That was their motivation. But Jesus is concerned to tell them that John the Baptist is not just a prophet. He's not only a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. You see that? They're all hyped and excited that there's a new prophet in town. In our culture, that feels a little silly, perhaps, maybe even weird to get excited about hearing about a new prophet. But something to keep in mind is this was a deeply religious society. So something like this would have actually been significant to them compared to something in our culture like this. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, there's a new show that just came out. Let's go watch it. Hey, there's a new prophet in town. Let's go hear him. That's the idea. The culture has heard about John the Baptist. In fact, he's speaking to crowds, verse 7. He's talking to the crowds about John the Baptist. He's a famous prophet. There are crowds who know about him. But Jesus wants these crowds to know that John the Baptist is not just a prophet. Although that is why they came to see him. He's not only a prophet. Verse 10 explains what Jesus means. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus here quotes Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. And in Malachi 3, God is telling Israel that God will send a messenger before God himself comes to earth. So there's a messenger who comes before and then God himself is going to come to earth after. Jesus is saying here, John the Baptist is that messenger who prepares the way. Why is this significant? Why is Jesus saying this? Why is Jesus making this point at all that he's more than a prophet? Because they're all excited that John the Baptist is a prophet. But they're missing the whole point of John's ministry. And that is that John ushered in Jesus. It's not about how John is a prophet it's about who John the prophet spoke about and who John the prophet prepares the way for. That's why John is significant. That's why John's more than just a prophet. He has a personal role in ushering in Jesus himself. Jesus wants them to know that. He, also, he wants them to know that John is only significant because Jesus himself is significant. John's ministry pointed to Jesus. It's John who said he must increase, talking about Jesus, that I must decrease. Verse 11 continues this thought. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater. So Jesus does affirm that John is a great guy. But more on that in a moment a question before we move on to the next sentence that we might have is, Jesus was born of a woman too, right? So why is John the Baptist greater than all who've been born of women? That would include Jesus, wouldn't it? I actually don't think so, and here's why. Among those born of women, there is none has arisen, has arisen. That's a completed action. Even the Greek tense makes it clear that's a completed action that's not continuous, specifically not continuous. It's called the perfect tense, and it doesn't matter. It's completed. It's over. That's John's story. John's ministry is completed, past tense. It's done. John is now decreasing. He has come to do what he has come to do. It's a completed action. It's not continuous. Jesus, on the other hand, his ministry is not done. His ministry doesn't have a cap on it yet. He is still rising. In some ways, that's a nuanced uh, distinction, but I think it is important. Among those who have come and gone and have done what they came to do, John is the greatest. Among those people, John is the greatest. Okay. Okay next sentence of verse 11 will be explained as the rest of the paragraph continues. So I'll read it here. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I'm going to skip this for now. We're going to look at the rest of the paragraph because this rest of the paragraph is going to explain what this sentence means and then we'll loop back and we'll, we'll bring it all together. So let's continue in verse 12 for now. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. In chapter 10, Jesus just got done explaining that persecution will come. Persecution will come. John the Baptist himself is an example of that persecution. He was arrested in chapter 4. We're going to learn later in chapter 14, and this is what Pax was so eloquently describing, that he was going to die. Um, He was going to die because Herod was going to kill him. And he was killing him because John the Baptist was calling out Herod uh, for living not according to God's law. So the king wasn't living according to God's law. John the Baptist calls him out. John the Baptist is killed. Chapter 14, that's what happens. John the Baptist is persecuted. That's the point I'm trying to make. And he was persecuted as a member of the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom has suffered violence at the hands of forceful, violent people. Violent people will persecute the kingdom of heaven, which means they will persecute us as members of it. More on that in a moment for now in verse 13 for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John i think this is a kind of key key passage to understand in terms of how john the baptist how is the least in the kingdom of heaven greater than john the baptist i think here's the key the whole old testament prophesied until john until john john the baptist if you'll let me say it this way he's the last old testament prophet He's the last Old Testament prophet. That sounds a little strange because John the Baptist is described in the Gospel of Matthew, which is in the New Testament, right? And I know it's in the New Testament. But the purpose of the Old Testament is to anticipate and point to Jesus. The purpose of the Old Testament is to anticipate and point to Jesus. And it's Jesus who brings in the new covenant. We read about that new covenant in the New Testament, But when does the new covenant start? The new covenant starts when Jesus dies. Hebrews 9 says that a covenant is ratified by blood. So by Jesus' blood, the new covenant begins. So in John's day, he's still living under the old covenant because Jesus doesn't die until the end of the book of Matthew. The Old Testament prophets prophesy until John. John's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And then verse 14, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. The significance of this is that in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, God writes this. That's in the Old Testament, anticipating uh, when uh, the Messiah would come. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the Old Testament expectation is that God will send Elijah the prophet before God comes to earth. Before God comes to earth, Elijah's going to come. But this statement now in verse 14 begs the question, how is it that John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come? How is that? Well, if you scour the dangerous depths of YouTube, you will find some teachings on Elijah reincarnated and things like that. That's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. John 1, 24, the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 21, they ask him, they asked John, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I am not. No, I'm not. So this isn't Elijah reincarnated. Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is Elijah. He, he's saying that John the Baptist is the Elijah figure, really, who is to come before God himself comes. Why does Jesus say that John the Baptist is that Elijah figure? Well, look, the similarities between Elijah and John the Baptist really are fairly remarkable. 2 Kings 1.8, it reads this. It describes Elijah's wardrobe. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. That's Elijah. Well, let's read John. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. They wear the same outfit for one thing. First Kings nineteen four, Elijah did ministry in the wilderness. John three one, John did ministry in the wilderness. Second Kings two six, Elijah did ministry by the Jordan River. Matthew 3, 6, John baptized in the Jordan River. 1 Kings 18, 18, Elijah rebuked King Ahab. uh, Matthew 14, 4, John rebuked King Herod. The similarities between these two men really are profound, and they're both prophets. Luke 1, 17 sums all this up. John will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, John the Baptist has the same vibe as Elijah. (laughs) Really, he has the same vibe. He does similar things. He has a similar personality even. They have a similar ministry, but they're not the same person. But they have a similar ministry, the same spirit in the way for God to come to earth. So, Elijah was expected to pave the way for God to come to earth, And we learn that this Elijah figure is John. And that means, tying it into verse 13, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John the Baptist, as the last Old Testament prophet, he's the one who ushers in Jesus because that was Elijah's role, to usher in God. John the Baptist is the one who ushers the way for God to come to earth. That's the ministry that was predicted about this Elijah figure with all that said, I think now we're ready for verse 11 that we skipped earlier, the last sentence. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is talking about John the Baptist. The one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven, this is the kingdom of heaven realized in the new covenant. I think that's key. We're no longer talking, now that Jesus is talking about, in the. we're no longer talking about the Old Covenant because John's the last of the Old Covenant prophets, right? So now, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven realized in the New Covenant is even greater than the best Old Testament figure, period. The one who's least in the kingdom of heaven realized in the New Covenant is better than the best figure in the whole Old Covenant. John had the greatest role out of everyone who lived under the Old Covenant. He had the greatest role because he was not only a prophet as Jesus has gotten done teaching these crowds. He's not only a prophet. That's not all he is. He is someone who said God's words, so he is a prophet. But he was also the one who specifically pointed out Jesus himself. That's the greatest role anybody had in the Old Testament. But John will die before seeing Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. John will die not knowing the full realities of the gospel. Don't get me wrong, John is still a saved person. In the Old Testament, people were saved by believing in God. And John believed in God. In the same way that people in the Old Testament did. And that faith is what saved him. But it is new covenant believers, people like you and I, It is us who have an even greater role, as remarkable as this sounds, than John the Baptist, the most epic of the Old Testament saints. Because we know Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We know the glories of the new covenant. We're in the kingdom of heaven realized in the new covenant. John the Baptist wasn't. He was beheaded before it happened. My friends, We in this room, we know the full gospel. We know that Jesus died. We know that he was buried and we know that he rose again. We have an even greater role than John the Baptist had because we get to proclaim the full gospel. We know what John did not. We know what John did not. We know more about Jesus than anyone in the whole Old Covenant, including John the Baptist. And so, as we've been hearing about these past several weeks, let's go tell people about Jesus. Let's use this place of privilege, this place of greatness in the kingdom of heaven, let's use that to proclaim Jesus to the world. It's the greatest role It's the greatest role in the kingdom of heaven. Let's be more than prophets, as John was more than a prophet. Not just saying God's words, as important as that is, but introducing people to this God whom we know. Our God who has become human to die for us, to forgive us of our sin so that we could enjoy eternal relationship with him. Let's introduce people to him. Let's introduce people to him. As we share our faith, chapter 10 made it clear that we we will be persecuted. There will be persecution, much like John was. And it was hard for him. He died for it. That's persecution. But let's be bold to do it anyways, my friends. We have this greatness in the kingdom of heaven. We have the greatest role ever in the history of everything. We have the greatest role in the kingdom of heaven because we are proclaimers of the fullness of the gospel. Let's go do that. And even if we get persecuted, even if that persecution tests our faith, as John's faith was very much tested, let's proclaim Jesus anyway, knowing that we can always go to Jesus personally to ask for more faith if we're doubting so that we can proclaim Him more. Sometimes we're hesitant to proclaim. Sometimes we're hesitant to do that because we're not sure we're, we're there in our faith. We're not sure that we're, we're strong enough to, to endure the test. I think these passages push us against hesitation like that. We have the greatest role. Let's send it. Let's do it. And let's trust that God will build our faith. And if we end up having doubts, let's not be afraid of that. Let's, like John the Baptist, go to Jesus himself and ask Jesus to resolve our doubts so that we can take up this greatest role in human history to proclaim God himself died for us. Let's do that. Verse 15, he who has ears to hear... Let him hear. It requires spiritual, God given ears to understand the message of Jesus. The things of God are—they are deep. they challenge our spiritual insight. Some of these things, Second Peter three sixteen. I love this. It says some parts of the Bible are hard to understand. That's encouraging. I—I scratch my head. It took me so long to figure out this sermon. It was so. Hard. Some things are hard to understand about the Bible, right? He who has ears, let him hear. God, give us spiritual insight. When we do not understand, perhaps we doubt because we don't understand. Perhaps we just have questions about what am I hearing? I don't understand this. That's my experience. Even this week, like John the Baptist, let's go to Jesus and let's ask Jesus himself for the ears to hear him, the ears to understand him, and for the faith to proclaim him and to stand firm with him. Let's trust him to show himself to us and give us spiritual ears to understand and to hear what it is that he says. The last section of this this sermon I've categorized as the wrong response. The wrong response. Verses 16 to 19. This is the wrong response. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? Jesus asks It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. The point here is that this is the wrong response. So in that context, if someone were to play the flute, presumably this would be happening at a wedding in, that, in the ancient world. The right response to someone playing the flute at a wedding is to dance. There's music. You dance at a party is basically what's going on there. If someone, on the other hand, is singing a dirge, that is a, a funeral song, you should mourn. You should mourn at a funeral. You don't celebrate at a funeral, right? These are a little bit removed from our, from our context. We don't do this exactly the same way, but they're not responding appropriately. Imagine this. Imagine, so Hans prayed for me before this sermon, right? Imagine I came up and I said, Hans, thanks for praying for me, man. And I just took a nap. Are you kidding me? This is not what I'm supposed to be doing right now. You know, that'd be awkward for you. It'd be awkward for me. It's like awkward for me right now as I even demonstrated. It's, it's the wrong response, Right? <laughs> Taking a nap in a sermon is not the right response. It's absurd, actually. It's absurd. Jesus says also, verses 18 and 19 point out, it is absurd to reject Jesus. Neither eating nor drinking, and they served. It's the wrong response. Verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So in John's case, he's eating food. Uh, He's not eating food and he's not drinking. He's kind of a straight edge dude. But they say he has a demon. Well, they go the other way then with Jesus who does eat and does drink and they call him a glutton and a drunkard. They respond wrongly to both of God's prophets. They respond absurdly to both of God's prophets. They're not responding right. They're responding wrong. If you know who Jesus is, if you know who Jesus is and you do not follow him despite knowing who he is, then you are rejecting him. And that is the wrong response. That's an, that's an absurd response. To know who Jesus is and to not follow him is like me getting up here and taking a nap in front of you. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's absurd. It's not the right response. We might ask what is that person doing? That is what Jesus would ask us if we know who he is and we still don't respond to him. It's, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. Now, at the same time, so I want to say that because I do think that's what the text is saying. But if you're exploring who Jesus is, I do want to encourage you, this passage is not exactly talking about your situation. This passage is talking about people who have Heard and have been it's been revealed who Jesus is and they still knowingly treat him wrongly and respond to him wrongly. But if you're exploring the faith, I wanna encourage you, that's a good thing. I'm not calling you out right now. But I wanna encourage you. Verse six, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Come, learn who Jesus is. Come be blessed by him. Take him up. Enter into relationship with him. Respond rightly. If you do know who he is, Enjoy him forever. He has died to give that to you. So take him up on that. The last sentence of our sermon text is in verse 19. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, wisdom is shown to be right by her deeds. Or the act... John the Baptist, he proved to be wise by going to Jesus amidst his doubts. But those who reject Jesus after hearing about him are shown not to be wise. If you are not a committed follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you. This is an invitation to you. Come follow Jesus, come follow him. Don't respond wrongly, respond appropriately. Blessed is he who is not offended by me. Come be blessed by Jesus. Jesus died to offer that blessing to you. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and he blessed it, saying, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus died to bring us into eternal relationship with him. He died to forgive us of our sin. Let's take him up on that. Let's be blessed by him. He died to bless us. So let's be blessed by him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for being accessible to us, Jesus, so that when we struggle in our faith, when we doubt, we can go to you and ask you who you are. And we trust that you'll answer, God. And sometimes we don't trust that you'll answer. We ask that you would answer anyway, Jesus, you are who you say you are. You have shown that ultimately on the cross by being the, the king of the world and yet taking on humanity to die for the world. You are a benevolent leader, God. You are with us, even as the first verse of our passage talks about. And so, Lord, thank you for the blessing of eternal life Blessed are we who are not offended by you, God. Thank you for blessing us. Let us grow in you. Let us remember your death for our sakes as we take communion now. In your name we pray, amen.